0: Chapter 32, verses 1 through 10. I'm not going to read all 10 verses, just uh, the first verse. When the people saw that Moshe was taking a long time to come down from the mountain, they gathered around Aharon. You've heard the old uh, maxim that patience is a virtue? Well, (laughs) here we have the reverse. Impatience is not a virtue. When the people saw that Moshe was taking a long time, You know, um, it's not necessarily that they were impatient as so much as that they were uh, lacking faith. They really didn't know what happened to Moshe. Um, In in a word, you could say, they figured he was probably dead. And so, the people rebel against Hashem and his chosen leader. And instead, instruct Aharon, who happens to be the future Kohen HaGadol, uh, the future high priest, um, they instruct him to build a false god. So... What does Aaron do? He should have resisted, but no, he doesn't. Aaron plays the antithetical role of his future office, and he intercedes between the idolatrous nation and their false god. He actually um, acquiesces to their request, and he builds them an idol, just like they asked him to do. And so he also becomes the um, priest for this unholy ceremony. Uh, At any rate, um, after... Uh, Moshe is finished speaking with God and he's sent down the mountain Um, it really does not look very good for Am Yisrael in fact it's only by the grace of Hashem that he and his offspring will be chosen to function uh, he that is Aharon they will be chosen to function as go-betweens for Hashem and the people because the the grievous sin of the golden calf uh, really really puts God off. I mean, and it should. It really should. Um, The people have already promised everything that God has said we will do, way back in Exodus chapter 19. And yet now here they are, already um, uh, introducing foreign worship into what God has instructed them to do. It's not so much that they turned away from Hashem, as it is that when they built the golden calf, they used the calf, which of course was um, a symbol of strength in the ancient Near East, and it was also one of Egypt's um, uh, idolatrous symbols. They used this golden calf to represent Hashem. They looked at the calf, and in their um, how should I say, in their intentions, in their what they thought were good intentions, but we know otherwise. In their intentions, they thought, uh, this, in fact, is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And it's not so much that the calf was God, as it was that the calf was a representation representation of God uh, in their eyes. And so they supposed that God would be um, okay with this three-dimensional representation of himself, even though God expressly told them in Exodus chapter 20 not to make any graven images because you didn't see any image when you um, heard me speaking with you on the mountain. But nevertheless, the people didn't listen and they built the golden calf, and thus it was seen as idolatry, and God was angry. At verses 11 through 35, we read that Moshe pleaded with Adonai, his God. Why would Moshe have to plead with God? Because God, in his anger, was ready to destroy the people. Moshe, unlike his brother, obediently plays his brother Aharon's future role by interceding on behalf of the people. And Hashem decides to repent, as it were of the terrible judgment that he had planned for this rebellious crowd. Now, the formula that Moshe uses in this passage is a worthy one of notice. He provokes Hashem himself to, quote-unquote, remember his promise made to their forefathers. Now, at face value, we have to ask ourselves, can Hashem forget such a promise? Of course not. He doesn't forget. Yet, Moshe has come to trust in the spoken word of Hashem. I say spoken, since there was no formal written word as of yet. He's writing the Torah as we're reading it, or he's writing it down as we go along. So there's no um, lengthy body of of writings known as the written Torah yet. So, Moshe trusts in the word of the Lord. And it was this word, this promise, that acted as a guarantor of Hashem's character. God speaks, Moshe listens, and Moshe trusts. In other words, if Hashem couldn't be trusted to be faithful to the Avot, to the fathers, then with equal failure, which of course is a rabbinic principle known as call the or light from heavy, with equal failure he couldn't be trusted with these people as well. So Moshe knowing this principle um, actually reminds God of the promises that he made to the Avot. So, of course, the converse is equally true as well. Um, because God can be trusted with the um, promise that he gave to the Avot, he can also be trusted uh, with the words that he's spoken to the people. So, later on in the same chapter, in verses 30 through 35, we find that Moshe even risks his own spiritual inheritance based on this principle. If you're not going to save them, then don't save me either. As a reminder to those listening, this same formula can be found in Rav Shol's letter to the Galatians in Romans chapter eleven, specifically verses twenty-one through twenty one uh, twenty one through twenty two. Um, he uses a call of a comer argument there. Let's move on. Chapter thirty three, verses one through six. Uh, let's read it this time. There's not too many verses. Chapter thirty uh, chapter thirty three reads, quote, Adonai said to Moshe, which is valuable man of Moshe, leave you and the people you have brought up from the land of Egypt and move on toward Move on from here toward the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Yaakov. I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel ahead of you, and I will drive out the Kina'ani, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, uh, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Uh, verse three: You will go to a land flowing with milk and honey. "...but I myself will not go with you, because you are such a stiff-necked people, that I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this bad news, they went into mourning, and no one wore his ornaments." Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If I were to go up with you for even one moment, I would exterminate you. Now, keep your ornaments off, then I will decide what to do with you. So, from Mount Horeb onward, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments. (laughs) And God's upset, and rightfully so. In my commentary, I write, I will send an angel ahead of you. Commenting on the word angel, the Hebrew word for angel, of course, is malach. And it literally means one who is sent. um, In a kind of a midrash, implying um, a midrash on the word malach. Uh, I like to think that the word malach reminds me of the word melech. Malach is angel, and melech is king. So in my little midrash, um, perhaps malach implies a messenger of the melech king. You get it? A messenger of the king, an angel of the king. At any rate, the reference here is not to the familiar angel of the Lord when we read, I will send an angel ahead of you, uh, who is in fact the Lord himself. And the reason I make that statement is because when God says that I will send an angel ahead of you in verse 2, but then down in verse 3, says, I myself will not go with you well, then if this angel were in fact the angel of the Lord, which we know is in fact the Lord, then the clarifying statement, I myself will not go with you, wouldn't make any sense. So this seems to be just another angel, um, a ministering angel. Moshe is aware of this indicated shift in God's distancing himself from his people. And later on we shall see his reply, Moshe's reply, because he, he senses God's anger and his disappointment in the people's choice in making the golden calf. Now, this definitely signaled the move of Hashem's Shekhinah, his glory, his manifest glory, uh, from the midst of the camp to the outer borders, away from the people. Remember, God had already had his tent set up in the middle, and now, because of this incident, God decides to move to the edge of the camp. In verse 11, it reads, Adonai would speak to Moshe face to face. Um... The Hebrew. Let me just pull it up here for you. Thirty-three eleven in the Hebrew. Well, let's see. The English says Adonai would speak to Moshe face to face as a man speaks to his friend. The Hebrew says, uh el panim um, el panim kaasher ish el The uh, Phrase face to face. I'm sorry. I said I said El Rehu, It's El re'ehu. Uh The the phrase face to face. The Hebrew is Panim El Panim. It literally means faces to faces as a man speaks to his friend, not necessarily face to face as we have it translated. And the reason it's translated faces or face to face and not faces to faces is because um, there exists a few words in the Hebrew language which represents themselves without a singular form. And this is one of those words. Uh, we translate this word as face, yet the literal word is panim, faces, according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs, Jacinius uh, lexicon. Um, the literal word is panim, faces. And the root word from which we get face or faces is pana, most often translated as turn, according to Brown, Driver, and Briggs. Now the term face-to-face is a well-known idiom in Judaism. And um, again, according to um, oh, let's see what other uh, dictionary tools do I have. Yes, right here, according to the TWOT, the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament, um, this particular word uh, always shows up in the uh, always shows up in the plural. Um, as I mentioned, the term face to face is a well-known idiom in Judaism, and it conveys a sense of acceptance on the part of a wholly unapproachable God, in spite. of, of the sinful nature of mankind. It's a fitting example um, right here. Um, The idea of atonement is in view here, face-to-face, and that's where I'm going with this, um, bringing out the term face-to-face. Atonement. This is fitting, given the recent turn of events involving the awful golden calf. There we saw that Moshe was actually attempting to make atonement for the wicked people. That's why I mentioned Moshe's response in uh, chapter 32, verses 30 through 32. Elsewhere in the Torah, the idiom face-to-face, panim el-panim, is an indication of the festival of Yom Kippur, that is to say, the Day of Atonement, in which the Kohen HaGadol, the high priest, went into the most holy place and came, as it were, face-to-face with the otherwise unapproachable God of the universe. Now with this interesting insight in mind, I'd like you, the listener, to go back and read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12, the first part there. This noble statement about the relationship between Moshe and Hashem would later be remembered at Moshe's death as well in Devarim chapter 34, verse 10. Commenting on chapter 33, verses 12 through 23, um, I've got to read some of this or else we won't understand uh, my comment here. Uh, Let's see, 12 through 23, we have, quote, Moshe said to Adonai, look, you say to me, make these people move on, but you haven't let me know whom you will be sending with me. Nevertheless, you have said I know you by name, and also you have found favor in my sight. Now, please, if it is really the case that I have found favour in your sight, show me your ways so that I will understand you and continue finding favour in your sight. Moreover, keep on seeing this nation as your people. He answered, that is to say God, set your mind at rest, my presence will go with you after all. Moshe replied, If your presence doesn't go with us, don't make us go up from here. For how else is it to be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, other than by your going with us? This is what distinguishes us, me, and your people from all other peoples on earth. And then um, Moshe goes on to ask in verse 18, I beg you, show me your kavod, your glory. Moshe asks God to actually see him. Um, Moshe asks to see God, as it were. And um, this is really a bold request, because as I understand it correctly, Moshe is actually asking to interact with God more or less the way that humans interact with one another, face-to-face, flesh-to-flesh. So, my comment states, The Messianic themes abound in this unique and never-again duplicated encounter between Hashem and his friend Moshe. Uh, I will pronounce the name of Adonai. The Hebrew is yod Vavhe. vav I will pronounce the name of yod Vavhe vav Is what... Hashem tells Moshe. Now, fantastic insights are revealed as we begin to understand from the New Covenant text of, say, Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, which quotes from Yeshua chapter 45, verse 23, that the name of Adonai, the name of Yudhei Vavhei, is actually equated with Yeshua in some mysterious way that we cannot fully understand. Of course, Yeshua is actually actually the fullness of yod veiled in flesh. And so that makes the revelation even more mysterious, as we understand that uh, Moshe is really asking to see God in, in human form. At least that's how I understand his request. Show me your glory. What is the kavod of Adonai, if it is not, in fact, the Messiah of Adonai, which is, of course, Yeshua? And so, in a sense, if I could spin it midrashically, of course, with a messianic twist into it. Moshe is really asking Hashem, Show me show me yourself veiled in flesh, which messianically would mean show me Yeshua, although I don't know if that's exactly how Moshe would have articulated it. At any rate, only in this regard when we understand that Yeshua and, and Adonai or Yeshua and Yerivavhe uh, are in Echad, only in this regard is the name of Yeshua as indicated in the above passage of Philippians um, Quote, above every other name, including by implication Yerivavhe. Now, um, what I'm suggesting here is that in some strange, mysterious way, and you, you, again, you just got to go back and read Philippians when when the passage there when Shaul speaks that. God the Father has given Him the Son a name which is above every name. At its Peshat level, on its on its um, literal level, the name of Yeshua is above the name Yerihovhe when He says a name above every name. And yet, it's not a competition of names because they are an echad. It's that the Father presents the the Son's name in such a way as to suggest that we humans cannot interact with Yerihovhe. Fully, unless we understand the person and work of the Messiah, who is very God veiled in flesh. So, only the name given to Yeshua by Yehovah his Father is the fullest revelation of the unfathomable, unfathomable Father, the Ain Soph, the unknowable one, the one without borders. Um, uh, in fact, in the passage where Hashem asks. Uh, I'm sorry, Hashem declares the name, um, you know, yod heh uh, vav yod vav Yahweh, Yahweh. Let's see, in verse... Um, let's see, where is it? In in chapter, moving down to... Well, I guess I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> in verse um, 19, where... Uh, of chapter 33, where Moshe says... Or I'm sorry, where Hashem says, um, He replied, this is Hashem replying, I will cause all my goodness... Caltovi, um, my goodness, all my goodness, to pass before you and in your presence, I will pronounce uh, the name of Adonai or the name of YHWH. Moreover, I will show favor to whom I will, and I will display mercy. So we see the themes of favor in verse 19 then of mercy in verse 19 uh, of God. And of course, um, these attributes, mercy and favor, are best um, um, attributed to. The Son. Now, of course, the Father has these attributes as well, but He displays them fully in the person and work of His Son. So, Yeshua is the visible glory or the visible kavod of the Father. Verse 22a of chapter 33. Um, So, what I'm saying is this we have a theophany going on. The invisible God makes Himself visible. And for all intents and purposes, whenever the invisible steps into the visible, and it's God. In this case, it's a theophany, and a the theophany is to be equated with Yeshua. Let's move down into chapter 34, and we'll make this a little, more, um, a little more explicit. In chapter 34, starting with verse 5, we read, Adonai descended in the cloud, stood with him there, of course stood with Moshe, stood with him, stood with him, It's an obvious uh, anthropomorphism, assigning um, legs to the Lord, if it were. Adonai stood with him in the the cloud there and pronounced the name of Adonai, or Yudhe Verse 6 Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Yudhe Vavhe. Yudhe Vavhe. The Lord, the Lord is how it shows up in some English translations. Um, Yudhe Vavhe is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth. And verse 7, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses, crimes, and sins, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effects of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and grandchildren, and even by the third and fourth generations. Now, um, this set of passages is the famous 13 attributes of mercy of Hashem, as identified by the sages, the 13 attributes, if we were to go down and count them. The ministry of which I was a former writer, FFOZ, First Fruits of Zion, has this to say about these attributes quote, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. End quote. This passage, or the 13 Attributes of Mercy, as the rabbis call these verses, has become one of the central doctrinal expressions in Judaism. The verses have found their way into the siddur and are recited on fast days and on Yom Kippur. According to Hertz, quote, All schools of Jewish thought agree that these momentous and sublime attributes enshrine some of the most distinctive doctrines of Judaism, end quote. What does God's forgiveness and compassion actually look like in flesh and blood? The answer, of course, is that we should look immediately to Yeshua, the Messiah. For in him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. A reference to Colossians 2 verse 9. By looking at these 13 attributes in the person of the Messiah, we are implying that there is an intimate connection between the Messiah and God. This is not just an an imitative connection, but a substantive one. As the Lord is, so is the Messiah. Moreover, Messiah is the walking embodiment of all of these 13 attributes, end quote. Now, that um, quote was lifted from a commentary to Kitisa on March 6th of 1999 is when it was written. And last time I checked, it was available at http colon forward forward www.ffoz.org. In verse 17 of chapter 34, we read, Do not cast metal gods for yourselves. Now, obviously, this is applicable to the immediate situation where they did what? They cast a golden calf. All right. Verses 19 through 20 of this chapter reads this way. Quote, Everything that is first from the womb is mine. All of your livestock you are to set aside for me, the males, the firstborn of cattle and flock, The firstborn of a donkey, you must redeem it with a lamb. If you won't redeem it, break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you are to redeem, and no one is to appear before me empty-handed. Commenting on the first verse there, everything that is first from the womb is mine. If you remember, uh, when Yeshua was born, his parents, um, Miriam and Yosef, took him to the uh, temple to dedicate him uh, in Luke 2.22. Through 24 we see. And it is because of commands like this um, where God says that the firstborn are mine that they were obedient to this. They were Torah observant and what we're seeing in the book of Luke there is an example, just one of many obviously of their Torah observance. This particular commandment where God instructs Israel to dedicate the firstborn uh, of man and beast back to him uh, is also stated in Exodus chapter 13 verse 2 Verse 12 and verse 15. Okay, moving down into uh, chapter 34 a little further, we come across a set of verses that um, seem to have a common theme, and I'm going to park my commentary for a little bit and talk about this one. Chapter 34, verses 22 through 26. Let me read the verses first, uh, the Pasukim, and then we'll talk about them. Observe the festival of Shavuot with the first gathered produce of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the Lord Adonai, the God of Israel. For I am going to expel nations ahead of you and expand your territory, and no one will even covet your land when you go to appear before Adonai your God three times a year. You are not to offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread and the sacrifice of the feast of is not to be left until morning. You are to bring the best first fruits of your land into the house of Adonai, your God. You are not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. End quote. Okay, these verses, um, if you can catch the context, we're talking about the uh, Shalosh Regalim, the three festivals. And in this setting where God gives them some. Um, extra instructions regarding um, the Passover and the festivals, um, the first fruits offering and things like that. He gives them some minor details, and moving down from that, we end up with the last part of verse 26, where it talks about not boiling a young kid in its mother's milk. This particular pasuk, this verse alone, has caused um, some confusion uh, among... The rabbis, uh, to be sure. Uh, the messianics as well. And in this uh, sense, we need to stop and examine the verses just a little bit. The following Pasukim and the topics they cover, which is uh, basar b'chalav, are um, milk and meat to be consumed separately. They were briefly discussed in my own parasha at Mishpatim um, a few weeks back. What did we decide their cryptic meaning was? In other words, this verse shows up again in it ex- shows up first in Exodus chapter twenty-three, verse nineteen, um, and now we're seeing it again here in Exodus chapter uh, thirty-four. Uh, what did we decide their cryptic meaning was? Where God says, "Don't boil a kid in its mother's milk." Do you remember? Well, um, we decided that perhaps boiling a kid in its mother's milk does not mean um, a prohibition of consuming milk and meat together. That's what we decided back then. Uh, but let's dig a little bit deeper to see why uh, we came up with that meaning. Uh, this time I'm going to use the Sages of Blessed Memory, the Chazal, and I'm going to uh, let you hear uh, both modern rabbis as well as late, rab- uh, ancient rabbis. In here. And and you can tell me what you think about um, the verses and come up with your own opinion, I suppose. Um, because I'm just one person. There's another, another article written by Rabbi Isaac Klein that speaks of this milk and meat prohibition. Uh, let me make this quote as well. Uh, this says, quote, The separation of milk and meat is the most prominent, distinguishing mark of the Jewish home. Most of the laws connected with the consumption of food are the concern of the Shochet, which is the person who, um, the, the 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 one who does the ritual slaughter. Uh, the butcher, the one who actually separates the meats and such and the grocer, where you buy the food, all of whom are involved before the food reaches the home. With the separation of milk and meat, the family becomes directly involved, and the kitchen receives its Jewish character. He goes on to say, neither the Bible nor the Talmud gives any rationale for these laws. He's talking about the milk and meat separation laws. Maimonides, uh, Maimonides is also known as the Rambam, or Rambam, as as I would say, Rambam, Um, Moshe, Ben Maimon, uh, he ascribes their origin to Jewish disgust at the fertility rites practiced by the pagan cults of Canaan. And you can read that in his Guide for the Perplexed, chapter 3, verse 48. One of these rites was the cooking of a kid in its mother's milk. Dr. Nelson Glueck reports that this practice is still found among the Bedouins of today, not as a pagan rite, but as an act of host- hospitality to a distinguished guest. And you can see also finkelstein pharisees chapter 1 verse 58 through 60 chapter 2 um number 1 uh 831 uh through through 832 uh, and notes you can also read uh, the quote i pulled most of this from the encyclopaedia mikra'it Mikra chapter 1 verse 89 baron social and religious history is who uh, published that uh, chapter 1 uh number 328 and the notes uh, following. Uh, Rabbi Klein goes on to conclude, quote, to this regulation reflects reverence for life and the teaching of compassion. He's What he's doing right now, if I can interject, he's adding his own comment as to what he believes the virtues mean. The verses, um, don't boil a kid in his mother's milk, let me just tell you up front, have been interpreted variously. We've got an interpretation that puts it as a dietary prohibition. That's the one that I just um, read about. We've got a, a, an interpretation that um, describes this as uh, forbidding an ancient Canaanite ritual. That's the one I also just described. But we've got yet a third interpretation of what these verses mean, and that's what I'm going to read for you right now. Uh, let me back up. To this regulation reflects to us, he, and uh, of course to us would be Judaism, to us this regulation reflects reverence for life and the teaching of compassion to seethe a kid in its mother's milk is callous, Professor Abraham Joshua Heschel expresses it thus: quote, the goat, in our case, more commonly the cow, generously and steadfastly provides man with the single most perfect food that he possesses, which is milk. It is the only food which, by single uh, i'm sorry, it is the only food which, by reason of its proper con- composition of fat carbohydrates and protein can by itself sustain the human body how ungrateful and callous we would be to take the child of an animal to whom we are thus indebted and cook it in the very milk which nourishes us and is given us so freely by its mother in uh, quote and um, uh, Joshua Heschel pulls his quote uh, inside of Rabbi Klein's quote from even Ezra's commentary on Exodus 2319 um quoted in Dresner and Siegel Jewish dietary laws on page 70 okay all right let's now look again at the sources of the um inspiration for the interpretation of the verse we've already seen two of them Exodus 20 I'm sorry Exodus uh yes Exodus 23:19 and now we're seeing this other one Exodus 34 verse 26 the laws concerning the consumption of cooking milk and meat together, as the way the rabbis determine them, uh, are based on this one verse that is repeated three times in the Torah. Quote, thou shalt not see the kid in its mother's milk. Uh, the three locations, Exodus twenty-three nineteen, Exodus 34, 26, and then finally Deuteronomy 14, verse 21. Now, the Talmud, as I've already mentioned, interprets this prohibition to include all kinds of meat, not just um, that of a kid, um, explaining that a kid is mentioned specifically because cooking a young goat in its mother's milk was the prevalent custom. Uh, they reference um, the um, Bavli at Hulin 113b, as well as, um, uh, let's see, the Shulchan Aruch Deah uh, 87.2. Um and again this prohibition of boiling kid in its mother's milk which is interpreted as don't eat milk and meat together from a Talmudic point of view rabbinic point of view extends to any kind of meat um to include chicken i might add in many cases however the term meat is limited to its popular connotation that is it does not include fish or locusts in places where it is permitted to eat locusts. And again, the reference from locusts is from the Shulchan Aruch, Ya um, De'ah, again, 87.3. The rabbis noted that the prohibition is mentioned three times, just as I gave you the three references. So, obviously, whenever something is mentioned um, in a certain fashion, three times, or twice, or seven times, the rabbis take notice of the numeration or the numbering of the times that is mentioned. And since it's three, they interpreted this to in- indicate that it refers not only to cooking, which is one time, but also to eating, which is the second time, and to the derivation of any benefit, or Hana'a, from the cooked mixture. That's the third time. So we've got... Um, Midrash being spun on the number of times that it is mentioned. The first time they say um, it refers to the cooking prohibition. The second time they say it refers to the consumption of it, the eating of it. Uh, And then the third time um, from deriving any benefit from the cooked mixture. So we got three times and three different reasons. Thus, uh, to summarize, it is forbidden to cook milk and meat, the very act of cooking it. That's once, uh, one time. It's forbidden to eat the cooked mixture. That's two or to derive any benefit therefrom. So, uh, in their opinion, a dish that combines milk and meat may not even be fed to one's dog, but must be disposed of. Since the Bible speaks of cooking, and and that's really the Peshat, that's what the literal verse says, you know, do not seethe a kid in its mother's milk, the the Hebrew word for seethe there. Um, Let me look it up for you real quick. I'll just read the Hebrew... I should have had my Hebrew open here, I apologize. Uh let me find it. Okay. Duh, what does it say? Um uh, do not boil a kid in its mo- you're not to boil a young animal or young a kid in its mother's milk um boil um bashel uh, is and really the the word bashel is um the root word uh, bashal actually uh, it means to bring to maturity. Of course, in the in the context of cooking, you're taking the meat from an immature state, which is raw, to maturity, which is cook. Which is why sometimes the verse is translated, um, "Do not bring a kid to maturity in its mother's milk, or do not boil." Of course, boil is 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 see their cook. <clears throat> so. um... Since the Bible speaks of cooking, this stringency of the rabbis prohibited any benefit from mixture applies only when the milk and the meat have been cooked together, when it says don't apply any mixture. And again, that's the uh, Shulchan Aruch for that. So, you may be asking... Me, Ariel. And and you asked last time and I answered and I'll ask answer again. What is my understanding of the Ispa Sukim according to the facts presented? After I take all of the facts together and weigh them out, put them on my table, and sort them out, what is my opinion of the matter? What have I what conclusions have I drawn? Well, I do not personally adhere to a universal application of the mitzvah, a universal application where we have the prohibition of mixing milk and meat together, especially among Mexianics, since we uh, naturally um, formulate different uh, areas of halachut than the rabbinic our rabbinic counterparts. Um, because some of the halakha of the rabbinic uh, fathers, the sages, stands in direct opposition to uh, our own Rabbi Yeshua, and so we have to draw the line somewhere, and this is one of the places where we draw the line uh, as far as the milk and meat thing, however, I simply disagree with a person uh, with a universal application of the mitzvah that 's not to say that I disagree personally um, in fact, as of this writing uh, this is the month of March in the year of two thousand and seven when i 'm making this recording as of this writing, I am personally abstaining from milk and meat mixtures. However, I'm not abstaining from chicken and milk mixtures, since I think that's a stretch there. But what I've done is, I've decided to give this milk and meat separation thing a try. Now you're probably asking me, well, does that mean that you're separating your dishes, that you've got separate utensils, uh, separate plates, things like that? The answer is, no, I'm not doing that. In my opinion, that's, that's a, that's, that is that's just a little too strict for my understanding of what the verse is trying to tell me. It's not that I wouldn't perhaps say... Um, Uh, allow myself to uh, participate in that stringency were I invited to, say, a rabbinic Jewish person's home. Uh, I would not disrespect them. I would respect their understanding of the verse and walk into their preference there. However, again, for me personally, um, number one, I don't believe that this should be applied universally to all Messianics, uh, or Christians in that sense. And number two... Personally, I'm, I'm walking in milk and meat separation. It just means I'm not eating any cheeseburgers or anything like that. However, again, I do respect those who feel led to make this a part of their service to Hashem, which of course would include Messianics and non-Messianics. Um, I find neither harm nor advantage in separating milk from meat. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a neutral issue. If you separate milk from meat, great. If you don't separate milk from meat, so what? That's my position so far. Um, of course, it's subject to change as, as the months and years go by. If Hashem reveals more of this to me and I decide that I'm going to be more strict, um, that's fine. I'm, I'm open to the move of the Spirit pushing me in that direction. But for now, I still stand by my statement made back in Mishpatim. So let me draw my quote from that commentary. Um, Mishpatim goes on to say, quote, Unfortunately, the sages of old, without the proper guidance of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, um, did just that. That is to say, they turned uh, this prohibition into uh, something more than I believe what it was intended to be. They misunderstood it. And not only did the people engage in gross idolatrous practices, in other words, at the Peshat level, the people disobeyed. Okay, Whether they were abstaining from milk and meat is not the point. They actually engaged in gross idolatry. They probably did walk right into the very prohibitions that God said don't do. Um, not only did the people engage in gross idolatrous practices, but also our sages completely misunderstood the instructions and, I believe, turned the mitzvah into some nonsense involving the prohibition of eating milk and meat products in the same meal. In other words, it would have been okay if they would have taken kind of a neutral approach and said, all right, this is our opinion, walk in it if you'd like to but if not, then we give you the freedom to disagree. But they didn't. They forced it upon the people, or they made it um, their halakha, as they have often been found to do, and made it the point that um, if you want to be a part of the community, you have to uh, obey this mitzvah. Um, This conclusion of theirs, I believe, is totally out of context with the surrounding verses. Understood correctly, I want to emphatically state that it is not forbidden to eat milk and meat products together. I don't think it's forbidden. Um, to eat them together. In fact, to prove my point, I went on to cite the passage found in a previous portion of Genesis 18, verses 1-8, through where um, Avram serves his three guests, of which one is Hashem. He serves them um, milk and meat in the same meal. So, I'll leave off there and stop uh, beating this issue up. Okay? Let me um, draw a conclusion to my commentary. We're almost finished. Chapter... 34, which is where our parashal closes. um, The final few verses, verse 29 through 35, um, 29 through 35, talks about how when Moshe came down, in fact, let me just read it when Moshe came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he didn't realize that the skin of his face was sending out rays of light as a result of his talking with Adonai. When Aharon and the people of Israel saw Moshe, the skin of his face was shining and they were afraid to approach him. But Moshe called to them. Then Aharon and all the community leaders came back to him and Moshe spoke to them. Afterwards, all the people of Israel came near and he passed on to them all the orders that Adonai had told him on Mount Sinai. Um, This particular passage is commented on by Rav Shaul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, especially verses 7 through 18. Uh, The only thing I want to point out is that you, the reader, should go back uh, and read that Corinthian passage and note the similarities and note that that Paul's using uh, the information found in our text here uh, to draw his midrash. It's a very good Passage, the Corinthian passage, and a great um, challenge. I don't have time to do the study in this particular format, though. In conclusion to this week's study, um, I want to emphasize um, that the fact that although Am Yisrael sinned grievously, uh, you know, with the golden calf incident, because that really is the uh, uh, one of the uh, highlights, downside, down, uh, weak points, I should say of this particular uh, commentary. So I want to uh, emphasize that their possibility for escaping that awful temptation was as great as is available to us today. In other words, they could have chosen not to sin. As the Torah demonstrated then and still teaches us today, Hashem's loving mercy is made available in abundance despite our spiritual depravity. Okay, They did not deserve to be forgiven. Although God forgave them they did not deserve his forgiveness, and consequently I might add we don't deserve it today we might we sh- we should not presume that we are better off than they are just because we've got Yeshua and therefore when we sin we think okay well, well of course we've got Yeshua, so we deserve to be forgiven no but then they didn't have Yeshua so they were just you know they were just pagans in disguise no um, we need to realize that God's forgiveness is is equally available then as it is today, and that He, in His mercy, chooses to forgive us. And yet we must walk into that forgiveness. We must avail ourselves of that forgiveness. We must demonstrate what? A genuine heart of repentance, if we want our God to extend uh, the hand of forgiveness to us. So today, I want to close with the admonition of Rav Shaul to his Corinthian readers. Um... Uh, let's see, is this a quote from that passage that I just mentioned? It is not. This is from First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11-13. through 13. Of course, he's referencing the golden calf incidents, which is why I want to um, bring it into this particular commentary. Quote, These things happened to them as prefigurative historical events, and they were written down as a warning to us who are living in the Ahreth Hayamin, the last days. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he is standing up be careful not to fall. No temptation has seized you beyond what people normally experience. And God can be trusted not to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. On the contrary, along with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you will be able to endure. Okay, let's close our commentary. Again, I'm not going to use any music as the outro because we listened to Ryan's entire um, song the Vishamru uh, there so after I read the closing blessing uh, you'll just hear the closing to my series alright the closing blessing is as follows Baruch Adonai Melech Asher Natan Lanu Torat V'chaye Olam Baruch Adonai Amen Blessed are you O Lord our God King of the Universe you've given us your Torah of Truth and a planet everlasting life within our midst Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. And with that, I wish you a very good Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. That concludes our show for today. Remember, because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh to the glory of God the Father. It should not be presumed that it can be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for God or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been, and always will be. My name is Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song was produced and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For information on contacting Ryan you can reach me by email at Yeshua 613 at Hotmail.com That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at Hotmail.com or visit our website at GraftedIn.com That's graftedin.com